0: Well, we are slowly making our way through Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel, um, and we come upon a, a section of text that uh, needs to be taken together, but it's it's pretty lengthy. So it's going to be a, a bit longer of a text than than we've uh, typically been taking here recently. But we're going to look at Mark five uh, verses twenty one to forty three. Mark five verses 21 to 43, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Mark 5, verses 21 to 43. And if this is your first time with us, we're so glad you're here. Our, our general practice around here is to simply find a book of the Bible um, and to kind of camp out there for a while and just kind of slowly, uh, systemically work our way uh, through the text. And so that's what we're doing right now with Mark's gospel. We started it uh, earlier in the spring and took a little break over the summer, and now we're, we're uh, in the fall time doing our next section of Mark, and and that's where we're at right now as we find ourselves in Mark 5, verses 21 to 43. When you stand there, if you want to, or when you reach there, rather, if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we stand out of reverence For God's Word, as we listen with reverence, and as we listen with joy, because this is the Word of our God, written by Mark, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we want to receive it as exactly what it is. It's God's Word to us. Listen now. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side... Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we, we need you. We need you to illuminate this for us so that we can understand what this text is saying and to see Jesus and to trust him and love him and obey him. And so we pray for your help now. Would you come and hover over our gathering this morning? Would you come and hover over our hearts and penetrate our hearts with the truth of this text? That Jesus might be glorified and we might receive much good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, most of the time when we make up words, it's a result of our ignorance. Um, you know what I'm talking about it's when we say words like irregardless or espresso, something like that. You know, it's, it's a result of our ignorance. But sometimes when people make up words, it's because they're really smart. And uh, that was the case with J.R.R. Tolkien You probably know Tolkien from uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, uh, and he was a a skilled philologist, which is not a made-up word. I looked it up. Um, But he he was someone who worked with texts and writings and and languages, and and with that, Tolkien was an incredible linguist. His use of the English language was uh, masterful. And not only that, he actually made up languages for his writings in, in The Lord of the Rings books. He was just an incredible linguist, and, and so it, it wasn't odd for him to, you know, make up a word or make up a whole language. It wasn't odd for him to make up a, a word in his life, in his writings, in order to get across precisely what he wanted to communicate in his writings. And he made up a word once that I think belongs in every Christian's vocabulary. It's the word eucatastrophe, eucatastrophe, and, and eucatastrophe, you can see the word catastrophe in it, Right? And catastrophe, it's usually a word used to describe a, a, a kind of disaster of epic proportions. But then notice uh, the word, the, the prefix you, in front of this word. And that, the, the prefix you means, it means good. So good catastrophe. And Tolkien. He mentions his invention of this word in his essay on fairy stories, where he was writing about the, the dynamics and movements of storytelling, particularly when it, becomes, when it comes to fiction and, and fairy tales. And, and in it, he describes eucatastrophe as, as the kind of polar opposite of catastrophe. A catastrophe in a story is where there's a sudden downward turn, often to great effect to the characters of the story. And yet a you catastrophe is a sudden shift in the face of that catastrophe catastrophe, but for good. He says, I quote, it's a sudden, joyous turn. It's just when everything seems to be lost. When when things are bleak and couldn't be much. Bleaker, And then all of a sudden, there's a thrill of hope, a great redemptive reversal that takes place in the story. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, you might think of the the battle at the Black Gate. and, And they're obviously losing. And in the face of most certain defeat and imminent death, Pippin's eyes catch something off in the horizon. Giant eagles off in the distance flying toward them. And he bursts out in hope and joy. The eagles are coming. And the eagles come and achieve victory at the Black Gate. catastrophe. C.S. Lewis is Tolkien's good friend. He, he picked up on this word in his, in his own vocabulary and used this kind of movement in his own writings. And he viewed it as something of a, a writer's tool in his toolbox to, to bring hope to an often hopeless world. One writer said about Lewis's use of this, he said that catastrophe for Lewis represented more than just hopeful storytelling... It was a way to extend the narrative of hope into a hopeless world, a means to smuggle joy into an often joyless world, catastrophe. And now I share all that because I I think that's what we find in our text this morning. We find a catastrophe. in the face of catastrophe. We see events in which everything seems to be lost, where things are bleak and couldn't be much bleaker. And yet then there's a a sudden joyous turn, a great redemptive reversal in the story that changes everything. Jesus shows up and turns illness into wholeness. Jesus shows up and he turns a funeral into a feast. But what's more is that we need the hope and joy of this story to be smuggled into our lives and into this often seemingly hopeless world that we live in. We need this catastrophe, as a narrative of hope to be extended into our lives and into this world today. So look at Mark 5, 21-43 with me. The sort of big idea that we're looking at here is that Jesus' might and mercy meet us in life's hardships and hopelessness. And you likely noticed when we, when we read the passage that there are three scenes here. And so we'll just take each scene as they come. The first one being found in verses 21 to 24. So look at scene one. Our story begins with Jesus returning from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And you'll remember as we looked at Mark chapter 4 that Jesus and his disciples had, had crossed the lake after Jesus his teaching the parables there in Mark 4. And thus begins this, this succession of stories that tangibly demonstrate Jesus' power and authority. First, we find him demonstrate his power and authority over the created order and the raging elements therein when he stills the storm. And then we find them arrive to the other side in this largely Gentile region, and there Jesus demonstrates his power and authority over the demonic and satanic and over spiritual evil when he casts out a legion of demons from a demonized man. But of course, people in that region begged Jesus to leave, showing us, demonstrating to us the truthfulness of the parable of the sower in Mark 4. And so he leaves, and they sail back across the lake, probably to Jesus' home turf there in Capernaum. And so now he's back among the people of Israel, and he's immediately met with another need, another desperate situation that needs his power and authority. A man named Jairus comes to see Jesus, and he falls down at his feet, just like the demonized man did in our previous passage, being in a similarly desperate and dire situation. Jairus falls down before Jesus, and he says to him, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, one of the things that this story that Mark makes abundantly clear in the story is that Jairus was a synagogue ruler. Mark mentions that several times here, which would have meant that Jairus was something of a, a powerful man. He was the, the sort of president of a local synagogue, which would have meant that he oversaw the worship and the scrolls in which they had the scriptures, and he oversaw uh, you know, the, the, the building and all the, the activities of the local synagogue there. This meant that he probably would have been fairly well off. He would have had a good measure of authority and influence in the community. He would have had a good reputation. He was probably a Pharisee. And you know, sometimes people point out that the woman with the issue of blood in this story doesn't have a name, and yet Jairus, he has a name here, and that's probably because Jairus was actually well-known in the community. Everyone knew his name. And yet here, status, his reputation, his wealth means pretty much nothing. Here, he's just a father who is losing his daughter, his precious little girl. His power, his wealth, his, uh, his reputation, it all amounts to nothing in the face of that kind of thing. In the face of death, he's suffering. In the face of death, he's helpless to do anything about it. And now, perhaps it would be good for, for us to just kind of pause there for a moment and, and reflect that no matter what someone's station or status in life is, everyone is susceptible to suffering. Everyone meets with hardship, everyone is helpless at some point in their lives, even the gyruses of this world. Even you, if you can kind of identify with Gyrus here a little bit as a person of privilege or influence or whatever, someone who, who just otherwise lives a, a, a life of relative comfort and ease, and yet none of that makes one ultimately immune to suffering, people like Jairus still get sick. People like Jairus still have family issues and are betrayed by loved ones. People like Gyrus still experience the death of loved ones. People like Jairus still face death themselves one day. And yet one thing that we can learn from Jairus, is that he lets his suffering drive him to Jesus. He had undoubtedly heard about Jesus and his healing power and authority, and so when he finds himself utterly helpless in the face of the darkest of circumstances, he runs to Jesus. Don't ever waste suffering in life by not allowing it to lead you to Jesus. Jesus. Now, suffering can be a great means of grace in our lives when it's used to that end. That's why Charles Spurgeon once said, I've learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. That's what happens with Jairus here, his, his daughter's illness. Of course, it's, it's tragic. You wish it wasn't happening at all, but it drove him to Jesus, and we ought to let our suffering and helplessness do the same in our lives. But I also think it's worth considering for those of us who don't identify as much with the Jairuses of this world, People who look at Jairus and go, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have it all together like him? He has a great job, great family. His social media photos make it look like he's you know, got the perfect life. have all their needs provided for, nice home, lots of friends, influence. And, you know, as a pastor, I, I sometimes get to, to sit with people as they go through the worst that life has to throw at them. And often I hear people, when they're suffering, have something of a disdain toward others who are not suffering like them. When we suffer, we can tend to imagine in our minds that other people's lives are perfect and orderly and without chaos and suffering, and then we can tend to, to silently nurse bitterness toward them because of it. I see it all the time. And what we forget when we do that is that, you know, it's so cliche and cheesy, but it's true, is that everyone is going through a hard battle that you know nothing about, so be kind. And that actually is a kind of old, uh, this, an idea that an old Puritan writer named Thomas Boston wrote about once in his book called The Crook in the Lot. The Crook in the Lot. And The Crook in the Lot, it's not about a, it's not about a thief in a yard. Uh, crook is like something crooked, something not right, and a lot is just the circumstances of one's life. And so The Crook in the Lot is, is about things that are wrong, things that are hard in a person's life. And in it, he says, everyone has these. He writes, everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. Complainers are apt to make odious comparisons. They look about and take a distant view of the condition of others, can discern nothing in it but what is straight and just to one's wish. So they pronounce their neighbor's lot wholly straight. But this is a false verdict. There's no perfection here. No lot out of heaven without a crook. And that's true even of the gyruses of this world. There's no one who's not a victim of life's hardships and hurts. There's no one immune to suffering. There's no one who doesn't need saving. There's no one who at times is not helpless. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world. We live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a world that has been ravaged by the fall. A world wherein bodies fail. A world wherein divorce Happens, a world wherein children get sick, a world wherein we blow it in sin in ways that we feel like we'll never come back from. We live in a world wherein we die, no matter who we are or what kind of status we have in life. Catastrophe happens. And it's often these kinds of events that show us how needy and weak and helpless we really are and how much we need someone To come save us. Jairus realized it. And that's why he ran to Jesus, which was the right move. Scene two. They're they're on their way. They're on their way to Jairus' house. and, And no surprise, Jesus is in Israel. He's out in the public eye. A crowd gathers. And they gather around him while they're on their way, thronging about them. It says... But then there's an individual singled out from among the crowd. Mark describes her in verse 25 as a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. I mean, think about that. She's sick for 12 years. Think about your life in 2009. And just imagine that one day in 2009, you woke up with discomfort, pain, illness, and it doesn't stop for 12 years. You're experiencing it to this day. Some of you don't even need to imagine that. It's a long time to be sick. But what's more is that this woman is poor. Verse 26 goes on to say that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. This word translated as as suffer here gives an image of someone being flogged and whipped over and over. A related word is used of Jesus' own flogging. And these these physicians, don't, don't imagine the kind of respectable, knowledgeable doctor that you go to or that you meet with in the hospital when you go there. These kinds of physicians were typically not trusted and would prescribe wildly superstitious treatments for illness, like carrying around ostrich, egg, ashes, and a cloth for a cure for disease. It's just wildly superstitious kind of stuff. And, and you see, she had gone to doctor after doctor like this, some of their treatments being pretty invasive and harmful, and she paid them for their services until she just ran out of money and that they could do nothing to heal her. In fact, her condition, it says, just got worse, This woman is utterly helpless. She's beyond what human help can offer in the face of her circumstances. But then moreover, it gets worse than that. You need to understand she's not just poor. She's not just sick and getting worse. She's also all alone. You might remember the Mosaic instructions in Leviticus 15. I know you've memorized Leviticus. And one of the implications of of her condition is that the law of the Mosaic Covenant would have declared her ceremonially unclean. And that means she's cut off from communing with God and His people at the temple. It means no one can touch her, no one can be around her without being declared unclean themselves. The Mosaic Covenant declared people who were losing blood like this unclean, whether it was due to a period or giving birth or some sort of hemorrhage or something like this. Whenever there was an issue of blood, a person was declared ceremonially unclean. And that likely seems odd to us, but there were multiple reasons for these laws in Leviticus, and I won't bog you down with all of those reasons, but there were lots of reasons for these laws of ceremonial uncleanness and whatnot, but one of them was that this ceremonial uncleanness from issues of blood and others like it would certainly have been something of a needed illustration and reminder to the Israelites to show them what moral uncleanness does to us as humanity ceremonial uncleanness was an illustration of moral uncleanness. And in the same way that ceremonial uncleanness cut people off from meeting with God in the temple and from being in fellowship with others, from religious services in the believing community, in the same way moral uncleanness, sin, cuts us off from fellowship with God and others. It isolates us and puts barriers between us and God and us and others. And, 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 and you know this. There's no such thing as a, a relationally harmless sin. You, you know this how, how lust or pornography or adultery, it puts up barriers between spouses. You know how lies puts up barriers between parents and children or friend and friend. You know how, how nursing bitterness in your heart puts up barriers between you and fellow church members or you and coworkers or you and a neighbor and, 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 and more. But then what's what's worse is that because God is a God of holiness and justice, this sin, this moral uncleanness in our lives puts up a barrier between us and God. Because of His holiness, He, He, He will not tolerate it. And because of our shame and guilt, we cower in fear and run from God. And so you can see that part of what Mark is trying to do here in this passage is he's trying to hold up a mirror to us to show us ourselves in this woman. We are this woman. Because each and every one of us, in our sin and our moral uncleanness, are cut off apart from Jesus Christ. Sin isolates us in fear and guilt and shame. And like this woman with her doctors, we we may well have tried every human solution to the problem of sin and guilt and shame. You may very well have tried to will yourself out of sin and vice by means of self-discipline and and self-resolution. You may have tried all of the self-help books available on Amazon. Amazon. You may have tried all of the positive thinking tricks and habits. You may have tried all of the the religious laws and legalism and zeal. You may have tried all of the, the spirituality and meditation practices out there. You may try it all, and yet at the end, apart from Christ, you find it only gets worse. And yet in the end, apart from Christ, you find it only gets worse. Because ultimately, we are helpless in the face of our sin. This woman tried and tried and tried it only got worse and only when she came to the end of her rope she realized like Jairus her utter helplessness and then she turned from trying and she trusted in Jesus. And she had heard about Jesus and so she she sought him out and she she came upon him while he was surrounded by this great crowd but she didn't let that deter her she was determined Verse 27 picks it up. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Like the previous passages before this, we're seeing something of the power and authority of Jesus over disease, over sickness, over uncleanness. I mean, think about it. How powerful does someone have to be to be merely touched and not even know it, and yet then make someone well. This is real might. This is real power and authority. And so again, this passage, like our previous two passages, is trying to show us something of the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, as God come to us in human vesture as the omnipotent one, come clothed in human flesh. But of course, this passage like the ones before it not only shows us something of the identity and might of Jesus, it's also showing us something about the work of Jesus, what he came to do, what he came to accomplish. Realize that in this woman's touching Jesus, technically, she made him unclean. But as you can see in the passage, in her touching Jesus, he actually made her clean. You see how this is is foreshadowing the cross of Jesus Christ, which, which Mark has kept in his sights almost from the beginning of his gospel. He's giving us small glimpses along the way of Christ's crucifixion. And what this passage is showing us is that what will take place on the cross, the cross on which Jesus will come to die, is a great exchange. Because there on the cross, Jesus became unclean for us. He took the sin that we have committed, the sin, the position of sin that we are in from birth. He has taken it upon Himself so that we would be made clean So that what cuts us off from God and from his people is washed away in Jesus Christ. So that we don't need to try everything to get rid of our guilt and shame and fear that plagues our consciences. Only to be continually frustrated by human ideas and methods and inventions. We can rest in his cleansing power and know for sure that we are clean in him. Friend, you may may have come here this morning feeling the enormous burden of being unclean, of being impure, of being defiled because you have blown it in ways that your lips tremble to mention. You may feel like you are a lost cause, but, but what this passage is showing us this morning is that with Jesus there's no such thing as a lost cause. You are not a lost cause with him. I want you to know that Jesus is mighty and merciful to meet you in your helplessness, to cleanse you, to take away your burden of guilt, to take away what shames you, to relieve you of your fears of being seen, of being known, of being judged. This is what he came to do for you. And all you must do is reach out to him in faith in trust in belief. That's what this woman did. Notice that there's this whole crowd pressing in around Jesus. Undoubtedly, many people were touching him. And yet there's one touch that's distinct from all the others. There's this one touch that when Jesus feels it, it stands out among all the others because it's a touch of faith. This woman's faith, when colliding with the mighty and merciful Jesus, unleashes his cleansing power. That's why Jesus says to her in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Jesus commends this woman for her faith and tells her that it's her faith that has made her well. And this is important to highlight here because you might have noticed that there are some imperfections in this woman's faith. It's it's mixed with a, a, a sort of odd superstition. Apparently, she hadn't fully learned her lesson from those superstitious doctors that she had gone to see in the ostrich egg ashes and all of that. Because here she seems to make a big deal about Jesus' garment, which was not all that uncommon in that world at that time. People could often seem to operate with a a degree of superstition regarding some sort of power from the aura of a religious or political leader. And sometimes a religious leader's clothes were seen to have possessed a, a sort of power that when you touch, you can draw from them. This is likely why everyone's kind of pressing in around Jesus here to touch him, to draw power from him for one reason or another. But this woman, although mixed with superstition, possesses a real, true faith and trust in Jesus. And this is important to point out because, again, we're, we're more like this woman than we realize. None of us possesses an entirely pure faith. None of us can claim to have a perfected faith. All of us who come to Jesus are a jumbled, mixed-up mess, having within us a mix of faith and doubt, maybe superstition. All of us in Christ are a jumbled mess of belief and unbelief. All of us in Christ are simultaneously sinful and righteous, and what this woman teaches us That no matter how much of a jumbled, mixed-up mess we are, that should never keep us from coming to Jesus. And more importantly, it never keeps him from receiving us. Remember that he said, all it takes is faith the size of a mustard seed. Do you remember how small that is? Faith the size of a mustard seed. Yet as the Puritans used to say, it's not the size or the strength of one's faith that saves, it's the object of our faith. Your faith may be weak and trembling right now. You may be buffeted by doubt or superstition, but whether your faith is weak or strong, it's the same strong Christ that saves you. And that's why this woman is made well. That's why she can go in peace, healed from her uncleanness, healed from what ails her. Scene three. Don't forget about our friend Jairus here. And you almost do, and then then you hear Jesus call the woman with the blood issue daughter, and then you, you almost wince because you remember there's this little girl, Jairus' daughter, back at the house on the verge of death. And with that, you can almost see Jairus off on the side, fidgeting, anxious, perplexed. Why is Jesus stopping to speak with this woman with the blood issue? I mean, think about it. She's had this issue for 12 years. This is not an emergency. The little girl is the emergency. The woman can wait, and in fact, she's already been healed. Jesus should have just kept moving on, right? And and yet he so values this woman. He wants her to know that she is seen and known and valued, and so he stops to address her. Even though there's Jairus' daughter on the verge of death nearby. It makes me think of a missionary to Nigeria, Mary Slessor. She once said that that Christ was never in a hurry. Christ is never in a hurry. And part of what that means for the Christian life is that sometimes we have to wait for our desires, our requests to be fulfilled. Jairus had to wait. Sometimes we have to wait. And in, in relation to physical healing, I think one apt application of this passage for us is to feel the freedom to come to Christ with our hurts, our pains, our physical illnesses and ailments, and to ask for healing and relief from Him, that, that we should do that. And yet part of what this passage is also showing us is that sometimes we'll need to wait. Wait. And sometimes that waiting will involve waiting until the full arrival of the kingdom of God at the end of the age when all of God's people will be fully and finally healed from every bodily failing of this sin-cursed age. But then while Jairus is waiting, things took a, a, a sudden turn for the worst. The catastrophe happens. Every parent's fear happens. As we see in this passage of verse 42 this little girl is only 12 years old which as we considered earlier 12 years is is a long time to suffer under the affliction of sickness but it seems like such a short time when it's the length of someone's life someone approaches and says your daughter is dead why trouble the teacher any further And just like that, the the situation goes from one in which Jairus is helpless in the face of his daughter's illness to being utterly hopeless. You know, sure, maybe Jesus could have healed this man's daughter when she was ill, but death, death is so final, so so ultimate, so conclusive, you know, people often attribute miracle, the miracles in which Jesus raises people from death in the New Testament to the ignorance of primitive peoples, but you can readily see here that these people knew that dead people ordinarily stay dead. It's pretty apparent to them as it is to us, and so they say, your daughter's dead. Why, why trouble him even any further? Just leave the matter be, it's too late. And yet Jesus overhears this. And this word translated as over here, it's this brilliant use of the word by Mark because it's actually where it has a double meaning. It, it also means to ignore. So Jesus, simultaneously overhearing and ignoring, says to Jairus, don't fear. Only believe. Do you see what he's doing? He's, he's telling Jairus, hey, did, did did you see what just happened with that woman when she touched, when she trusted me? Did you see that she was as good as dead and now she's restored to health and to the believing community, into life with God's people, in God's temple, communing with God and God's people? Yeah, be like her. Don't give up. Don't shrink back. Don't be afraid. Just trust me which I love when you consider the the status of Jairus and the status of the woman. They're they're on completely different ends of the societal spectrum. right? She's a woman. She's poor. She's unclean. She's all alone. Jairus is influential, powerful, wealthy, and yet in this upside-down kingdom of God that we live in, who does Jesus commend as an example of faith? This woman, even with her imperfect faith, Jairus also ought to be commended here, though, that he evidently humbled himself before the Lord and did indeed follow the example of this woman, didn't he? And so they go to Jairus' house, and verse 38 tells us that Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly, and when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping, and they laughed at him. Now, this likely seems strange to us. A part of what we need to understand what was peculiar to that culture at that time is that whenever someone died, it was common practice to hire professional mourners, professional lamenters, so to speak, to come and join you in your mourning over your loss. It'd be similar to how we hire people to come help us celebrate, you know, like a wedding reception, you might hire a DJ or a, a, a a band to help you celebrate your wedding reception. Well, similarly, people would hire folks to just come and join them in their lamenting and mourning, and often they would hire musicians to come and provide accompaniment for songs of lament. And so it's probable that at least some of the people here in Jairus' house are not close family or friends who are mourning the loss of Jairus' daughter, but professional mourners. And that's why when Jesus tells them that she's sleeping, she's sleeping. And not dead, they seem to just kind of turn off the waterworks all of a sudden and start laughing. That's why that happens, probably. And then, of course, when Jesus says that she's just sleeping, don't take him too literally there. He's not saying that they were mistaken in pronouncing her dead. Sometimes in the Scriptures, death is called sleep. And that's not just peculiar to the Scriptures. You can see the legitimacy of the comparison. You know, uh, when you're asleep, it looks like you're dead. But then when the Scriptures compare sleep and death, it usually compares the two to communicate something of the temporality of death in light of who Jesus Christ is and what He's done. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, yeah, this little girl is dead, but not for long. Verse 41 tells us, taking her by the hand, He said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Arise. And immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat and just like that. Jesus turns a catastrophe into a catastrophe. He takes the downward turn of the story, and he gives it a sudden, joyous turn, and with death no less. That probably doesn't strike us in the way that it should, often because we view death in our day and age very differently than the Bible does. Often when we think of death today, we just think of it as a kind of natural occurrence, something that's as natural as breathing or being born. It's just part of life. The Bible views death very differently. Death, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, is an enemy. Death is not natural. Death is the wages of sin and moral uncleanness in this world. Death is the result of the fall, a judgment upon the created order and upon us as sinful humanity. Death is an enemy. And it's one that we are powerless against so long as we are on this earth plagued by sin. And that goes for all of us. The powerful and the powerless in this world are all powerless against the enemy of death. Both Jairus and this woman with the blood issue are powerless against death. Everyone is. Everyone that is except Jesus. His power and might is not only able to overcome the elements of the created order instilling the storm, His power and might is not only able to overcome the demonic and spiritual evil of the demonized man, his power and might is not only able to overcome disease and sickness in the woman with the issue of blood, his power extends even over death itself. Even death must bow the knee to King Jesus. So he raises up this little girl from death and he tells her parents to give her something to eat. He turns this funeral into a feast. And of course, the point of this passage, friends, is you probably picked up from the last few weeks, is not that Jesus will keep us and all of our loved ones from ever experiencing death. Even this little girl, when she was raised, she, she was raised for a time, but she died sometime later in life at some point. now The point is to show us that Jesus is king whose might extends even over death And who in his mercy has come to one day set us free from it. And we can rest assured that he has, not just because he raised up this little girl here. Because of what we see at the end of Mark, after Jesus had taken our uncleanness upon himself on the cross. After he himself dies on our behalf, after his burial, when it seems that even Jesus has been overtaken by the power of our powerful enemy death. It was there that Jesus ultimately demonstrated to us that death has no power over him because he rose three days later unleashing the power of God's new creation kingdom into this world, a kingdom that we're still awaiting its full arrival and yet will most certainly one day come and will thereby turn this funeral-ridden world into a heavenly feast. Don't you see how well, that might not make the funerals and deaths and disease and difficulties and sufferings of this life any easier, any less painful. Don't you see how that changes your ability to face them? Leslie Newbigin, he once said, somebody asked him in an interview if he was an optimist or a pessimist. He said, I'm not an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The ultimate you catastrophe has happened. And it's not just hopeful storytelling. It brings a solid, credible hope into our often hopeless world. It smuggles joy into our often joyless hearts, even while the world hurls the worst it can at us. Because we know that whatever suffering we face, whatever hardship we meet with in this sin cursed world, one day Christ will overcome them all for us. And so suffering and disease. And death have an expiration date, while our joy and life in Christ doesn't. So like Jairus, to follow the example of this woman, don't fear, only believe. And if we believe, the might and the mercy of Jesus Christ undoubtedly will meet us in our helplessness and hopelessness. Let's pray. Father, would you seal this word upon our hearts? If there's anything false, not helpful, not edifying, not true, wipe it from our memory. But what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, help us to apply it to our lives and to live in light of it this week and always so that we might be filled with hope and joy in the face of and for this often hopeless and joyless world. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.